This weekend, our focus is on the light, and in particular, the conference or the retreat, I should say, has been entitled Men in the Light. And so that terminology draws us immediately to the Apostle John's first letter. So if you would turn in your Bibles to 1 John, we're going to be spending quite a bit of time in the uh, next uh, day together that we have here in 1 John. We will uh, get especially into the first chapter and then throughout the letter as well tomorrow. And just to give an overview of what we're going to cover in the next uh, sessions that we have, I, I essentially have three sessions plus a Q&A with you. Uh, the first session tonight will address 1 John 1 verse 5, and I'll get into that in just a moment. Uh, we're going to focus on, a, a, on a, a very strong assertion that the Apostle John makes, which is central to the theme of the time that we have together this, this weekend. Uh, it's going to be more of a theological overview, however. What I want to do t- this evening is, is look at the doctrine of God's holiness. John uses a particular metaphor, as we're going to see, the metaphor of light, uh, to describe God and make an assertion about God. And, and so I'm going to use that to, to catapult us, essentially, into a broader theological survey of the doctrine of God's holiness. Then uh, tomorrow morning, uh, the, our first session in the morning, uh, I will go in more detail, down into the details of 1 John chapter 1, 6-10. So tomorrow morning is really going to be a biblical exposition. We're going to look at the if-then statements uh, that we find from John in verses 6-10, to 10, that he draws from that very important assertion in 1 verse 5. Uh, so that is what awaits us tomorrow. In fact, uh, tonight, even after our, our time together, I'd ask that you take a, a look at those verses, 1 John 1, 6-10. Consider all these affirmations and denials that John makes because he will draw for us implications of the light. Tonight we're going to look at the source of light. Tomorrow we'll look at the implications of light. And then in our last session, Saturday afternoon, we're going to do more of a book survey. We're going to look at chapters 2 through 5 of 1 John as he then draws all these these bigger tests of what it means to walk in the light. And I'm going to focus on eight of those that we can glean, really practical instruction that we can glean from the pen of the Apostle John as he writes this letter. That'll be chapters 2 to 5, so it's going to be more of a a summary. So tonight, a theological survey, tomorrow morning, a a biblical exposition, and then in the afternoon, a a book survey. All of it drawn uh, in one way or another from 1 John. Well, with that, let me begin reading. I want to read from verses from verse 1 of 1 John through to the end of verse 5. The Apostle John writes this, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested. And we have seen and testify and proclaim to you 
the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. This is the message that we have heard from Him and announced to you that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. What John makes here in verse 5 is one of the great assertions of biblical Christianity, of the, the biblical faith, one of the great assertions on the character of God And for us to understand the theme of the conference, Men in Light, we must start here, not with ourselves, not even with our duties, not with our responsibilities, but rather we must start with the source of it all. We must start with God Himself. And that's what the Apostle John does as he begins the instructional portion of his letter. He begins with an assertion about God, and he makes this assertion using an antithetical metaphor. The metaphor of light versus darkness, a a metaphor that is familiar to all generations, all peoples everywhere, because we're all familiar with this great contrast, light versus darkness. He begins with this because everything else that the Apostle John is going to teach in this letter is contingent upon God, His character, and a right understanding of who He is is if we get this wrong, if we misunderstand or misconstrue the character of God as it relates to His light, then everything else that we seek to understand and apply in the rest of the letter will go astray. We must begin with the right understanding of of God. Now notice in verse 5, he begins with a positive assertion. He says this, God is light. This is one of the three great assertions that the Apostle John makes in his writings. We can go back to the Gospel of John, for example, and and find in John 4.24 that great statement about the spirituality of God. God is spirit. John makes that statement, and again, that is one of the most profound statements that can be made in three very tiny words. God is spirit. Three words Not very complex words in terms of spelling, but they're very profound. God is spirit. We have this one here in 1 verse 5. God is light. And later in the same letter in chapter 4 verse 8 and chapter 4 verse 16, John is going to make that third statement, which is also so very powerful and misconstrued today. He's going to say God is love. God is spirit. God is light. God is love. And the focus of our study is on this second one, God is light. And it's important to to ask the question, when John uses this particular metaphor, to what is he alluding? What does it mean from the Apostle John writing to the audience to which John writes in that era, around 95 AD, what is... The the nuance, the meaning of this term light. 
Well, it is very much a, a biblical metaphor. John isn't the first one to draw upon it. In fact, we can go to the Old Testament, and, and we won't do that thoroughly, but we'll, we'll talk about the Old Testament teaching on God's holiness. But, but when we go to the Old Testament, we can see that the light metaphor is used in one of two ways. It can be used to refer to revelation, truth. And so it, it, it could mean one possibility it, that, that John intends here is that he's saying that God is truth. For example, Psalm 36 verse 9 says, In your light we see light. That's a, an affirmation, an assertion about God that He is truth and everything that He touches, everything that He is, is truth. He's light and that it is transparent, it is visible, it is true. Proverbs 6 verse 23 says, The commandment of God is a lamp, And the teaching of God is a light. But that's not the emphasis that John is making, even though that is one of the options. That is an Old Testament option. Rather, John is drawing upon, and we can tell this from the context, especially as we go on in the verses that follow in 6 to 10, rather the the particular nuance that John is drawing when he makes this assertion that God is light is is the nuance of holiness, the nuance of moral purity. God, as light, is perfectly moral, perfect in purity. He is, as we are going to study tonight, holy. Now that is also a prevalent theme in the Old and New Testaments. And in John's case, we can go back to John chapter 3, verses 19 to 21. You can turn there. I'll read these verses to you. But John 3, verses 19 to 21, again, this is one of John's writings. And here he is probably recording the words of Jesus himself. There's debate about where, how much of John 3 Jesus himself says. I, I do think this is part of Jesus' own, own words, and John is merely recording them for us, but this is what John 3, 19-21 says. John writes, This is the judgment that light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. So we see here, based on those words, very much a moral idea behind the concept of light. And that's the best way to understand the assertion being made in 1 John 1 verse 5, when John is saying that this is the testimony that we have received from Jesus, the one who is manifested to us from God, the the one who dwells in the bosom of the Father. He has come. We have seen Him. We have heard Him. We have touched Him. And He has left us with a message, with a testimony. And that message is this. God is light. Jesus, as the one who comes from the Father and enjoys that eternal fellowship with the Father, has come, has manifested himself to us in very tangible ways. And and he has given us this message, John says, 
Notice verse 5. This is the message we've heard from Him. That Son, the Son Jesus Christ. The message is that God is light. God is morally pure. One commentator says this about verse 5. The assertion that God is light is probably as near an approach to a definition of the nature of God that human intelligence can possibly comprehend. It is meaningful to the simplest mind, yet unfathomable to the most profound thinker. In other words, on the one hand, the the concept of light is is so germane to human existence that you explain this to a child and you use this analogy between light and darkness and the, the child will get it. And yet for us, even those of us who have been studying Scripture for decades, we come to this and we dare not think that we possibly understand the depths of what this assertion is making. And as we will see, this this assertion should cause us to tremble. This is not some simple assertion. It is profound. John goes on to state it in the negative. Notice he goes on to say, This, not only is God light, but in Him there is no darkness at all. Now, here again, darkness is not the absence of truth. It could mean that in other contexts. But here, darkness refers to evil. And John says, there is no darkness in Him at all. Darkness is the place of concealment. Darkness is the place where evil deeds thrive. Darkness is is that which is black. Darkness is that which mars, it stains. And John says there is none of that in God whatsoever. Notice the absolute nature of that statement. There is no darkness at all. He could have simply said there is no darkness or that darkness is not at all in him, but he says there is no darkness at all to emphasize an absolute nature. There is nothing of the sort, not even the slightest tinge of impurity in his character. There is no mixture here. It's not good and evil dwelling together in God, not more good than evil, not some kind of yin-yang that exists in God. Absolute purity without the slightest tinge or hint of evil. Now, this is important, and we're going to get into this a little bit more tomorrow morning. It's important to realize, in light of the context of the audience to which John writes, at this time in uh, human history and in the history of the early church, there was a, a philosophy that was growing. We call it proto-Gnosticism because it wasn't really in its full form yet. Gnosticism will really not develop into a full-fledged religious philosophical movement until the second and third centuries. But already by the end of the first century, there was this proto-Gnosticism, this, this early form of Gnosticism that, that very much looked at the universe and God in dualistic terms. That... That, that, that had some, some, some very anti-biblical, anti-Christian ways of defining the world, of, of defining the Christian life, of defining salvation, and even defining God. We'll get into that 
more tomorrow morning. So John is writing to to correct misunderstandings and threats to the church that were coming from the outside. And John wants to affirm this. And, 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 And we could also say this, that even apart from the development of this false religious philosophical movement, there was long existing already the, the, Roman, the Greco-Roman paganism. And for, for Greek, the Greeks and the Romans, they, they viewed their gods as a mixture. Sometimes the gods did good things. Sometimes the gods were involved in all kinds of immorality. Sometimes the gods were noble. Sometimes they were licentious. And that is the typical pagan mindset at the time. And that would have been everywhere where the believers of the day mingled. It was in the temples. It was in the sculptures. It was in all the religious or or political uh, propaganda at the time. It was everywhere. And and the Greeks knew this. The Romans knew this, that, that their gods were a mixture. They would sometimes tremble at them and sometimes scoff at them. And into this milieu, John writes this assertion. And it's important to recognize that things have not really changed in our day either. When it comes to to our understanding of God, the one true God, there are far more errors today, even in the church, than there is proper thinking. The doctrine of God is constantly under attack And our challenge is always that we're bringing in cultural baggage, cultural perceptions of who God is, and we're forming in our minds these perceptions, somewhat from the Bible, somewhat from our traditions and maybe our homes, somewhat from the culture around us, and that's how we view God. We have to realize that. And like John writing to this first audience we must recognize that these threats exist and we must come back to the Word of God and say, my my understanding of God needs to be cleansed. And it especially needs to be cleansed if I want to talk anything about my own pursuit of holiness after. And I want to emphasize this to you men. So often within the evangelical church, there is a whole lot of emphasis put on the pursuit of holiness on our part and not nearly enough emphasis put on the character of God. And you might wonder, well, with such emphasis, the the holiness movement and all the the books that have come out and talking about holiness and pursuing these things, why is the church still the way it is? I don't think we need more books on the pursuit of holiness. I really don't. I don't necessarily think that you men even are wrong in, in what you would, you would acknowledge as the pursuit of holiness. And we're going to talk about that Saturday afternoon. And probably as I go through that, you're going to say, yeah, that's exactly right. That's what we need to do. But the problem is that we don't understand God correctly enough. And not understanding God, not, not being strong in our theology in our doctrine of God, will always spell disaster for our lives in the practical level. So we begin here with God. And as we do that, since John is emphasizing moral purity, holiness, with that metaphor, I want to now focus on the doctrine of God's holiness. Let's 
now camp in this attribute of God for the remainder of our time this evening as it will help us understand the emphasis John is making here in 1 John 1 verse 5. Let's start with a, with a definition of holiness. What does it mean when we say that God is holy? And again, here I want to emphasize the fact that when we talk about the holiness of God, we dare not start with our understanding or experience of holiness. All of us here will have some association with that word holiness, and all of us probably will say to one degree or another that, 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 that we're pursuing holiness. And so we'll start kind of with that perception, and we have a tendency then to say, well, I experience holiness this way, and I'm going to project that on God, and that's what it must mean that God is holy. Well, we dare not start that way. Our experience of holiness, as you very well know, is very problematic. None of us have arrived. We're all in fluctuation. Yes, we are farther along in it than we were five years ago or a year ago or hopefully a month ago. But it's still minuscule and compared to what it needs to be. And, and more than that, we're, we're mixed with all kinds of other things in our lives. And so even our best association of, of holiness is, is marred. And so we must look to the scriptures alone to define for us what holiness really is. Speaking of the very big difference between our understanding and experience of holiness and God's holiness, the Puritan Thomas Brooks said it this way, holiness in angels and saints is but a quality, but in God it is his essence. And that even comes out in 1 John. God is light. It's not that he is partly light. It is his very essence. God is light. For us, we cannot say that. We're mixed with a whole lot of other things. And so, looking to God's word, what, is it, what do we mean when we say God is holy? Let me give you this definition. This is going to be our operating definition. We're going to look at other scriptures that emphasize this. When we speak of the holiness of God, we are referring to His absolute transcendence and moral purity. His absolute transcendence and moral purity. That's what holiness means. Absolute transcendence and absolute moral purity. We're going to look at those two emphases in just a moment, but it's helpful to trace back why exactly do we... Do we uh, define it that way, and the, way, the reason we define it that way is that we look to the Old Testament. The Old Testament in particular has much teaching on the, the, the doctrine of God's holiness, and we trace the Hebrew word to be holy to a Hebrew verb that means to cut. Now, follow the logic on here. You might wonder, what in the world does cutting have to do with holiness. Well, when something is cut, it is necessarily separated. So, so think of a log, and, and you're going to split the log with an axe. You're going to cut it. It necessarily involves separation, one part from the other. 
And in the Old Testament, this is the concept that is at the the basis or the foundation for the concept of holiness. It's the concept of cutting, and and it's this way, that that which is holy is cut apart. It's a cut above. Uh, It's separate. It's distinct from other things. And in the primary sense, when we study the doctrine of God's holiness, we realize that God is first and foremost separate. He is a cut above. He is distinct from His creation. In a primary sense, God is distinct from His creation. That's the primary meaning of holiness. His essence is utterly distinct. That which makes God, God is not in any way intertwined with creation. He's not dependent upon it in any way. Creation isn't isn't ingrown into his essence. His essence isn't ingrown into creation. And immediately, the doctrine of God's holiness as taught in the Scriptures, particularly the Old Testament, automatically rejects the worldview of pantheism. Pantheism is the idea that God in his essence is equal to creation, the universe, the cosmos. They're one and the same. It's that idea that is that is basically fueling the whole environmental movement today. Earlier this week, Monday, it was raining really heavy in Southern California, and Ellen DeGeneres, who has a home in a very posh area outside of Santa Barbara called uh, uh, Montecito, Montecito? Um, she got on Twitter and released a little video. And in that little video... She said, we need to be nicer to Mother Nature because Mother Nature is not happy with us. That's pantheism. Seeing Mother Nature as some kind of deity, some kind of God like the the ancient pagans who would would find the need to, to, to bring their human sacrifices to appease that God and, and the environmental agenda has that same idea. Sacrifices have to be made. Mother Nature is upset with us. Ellen DeGeneres is pantheist. And Scripture very clearly denounces that. That's blasphemy. R.C. Sproul says it this way, when the Bible calls God holy, it means primarily that God is transcendently separate. He is so far above and beyond us that he seems almost totally foreign to us. We need to start there. We need to start there even with this definition that God is light. Because if we are to understand holiness, we need to start with that transcendence of God, that absolute transcendence from God, because so much in our generation today, we have trivialized God to make him so much like us, And that has so many consequences then to how we live our lives. No, if we are to talk rightly about living in the light, we must start with this reality that that God is high and lifted up. That He is utterly distinct from us. Do not make Him like yourself. He is existentially distinct. But there is that second nuance of moral purity, and I call it a second nuance because when we begin with the idea of God being a cut above, that that verb to cut, to distinguish, God in that primary sense is separate from everything else, 
and in a consequential sense, that means that he is therefore distinct from any kind of moral impurity. He is absolutely separate from any kind of pollution, any kind of blemish that would render him somehow less than perfect. There is no hint of moral defect in God. Not in his decrees, not in his words, not in his works, not in his end goals, and not in the means to achieve those end goals. There is no hint, no ingredient, no component of pollution or blemish in any way. God, in fact, cannot commit evil. It is impossible for God to commit evil. And that's not a weakness. That is his perfection. He cannot do evil. And as James 1 verse 3 says, God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. He is never the agent, the the doer of evil in any way. And it's really this second sense that John has, 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 has grasped here in, in 1 verse 5 of his first letter when he says God is light. He is referring to this concept of moral purity. So he's assuming the idea of absolute transcendence and separation from creation. And, and, he's, and he's latched on to the secondary consequential aspect of moral purity. And he's saying God is light in that he has no blemish whatsoever. A.W. Pink, in his good book on the attributes of God, said this, As God's power is the opposite of the weakness of the creature, as his wisdom is in complete contrast from the defect of understanding or folly in creatures, so God's holiness is the very antithesis of all moral blemish or defilement. And so when we read these words in 1 John 1, 5, that's where we must hone in on. That God is the antithesis of any kind of stain, any kind of transgression. God is the exact opposite. He is utterly distinct from any sin, from any moral impropriety, from any association with the darkness. God has nothing to do with that. That's where we must begin. Now, having said that, let's look at some verses that, that bear this out. And, I, and these are just verses from the Old and New Testament. I will just state a few. But, but we, if you've been reading the Scriptures for any amount of time, you realize that this testimony to God's absolute transcendence and His utter moral purity marks the pages of Scripture from Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation 22. It's everywhere. There is no denying this at all about God. Let me read just a few verses. For example, God's absolute transcendence, Exodus 15, 11, Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders. 1 Samuel 2, verse 2. There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. Of course, Isaiah 6, 
is the famous text. It's from this text that we get that famous hymn, Holy, Holy, Holy. Let me read verses 1 to 4. Isaiah, who was, who was a young man at the time, enters the temple of God when King Uzziah had passed away. King Uzziah had been a generally good king, but had also profaned the Lord, treated him as, as vain when he went into the temple to offer sacrifices, which was prohibited for a king. Only the Levite priests could do that. And so he, Uzziah was struck with leprosy and died a leper. And when he dies, Isaiah, this young man who has not been called as a prophet yet, enters the temple because he's distraught at what happened to Uzziah. He's distraught at what will happen to the nation. He enters the temple and this is what happens. Isaiah 6, In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of His robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above Him, each having six wings. With two, He covered His face, and with two, He covered His feet, and with two, He flew. And one called out to the other saying, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of Him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. We see this same scene then at the final book of the Bible in Revelation chapter 4 with the words drawn from Isaiah 6. Here, John sees this same vision. Four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, full of eyes around and within. And, and he saw them day and night, never ceasing. Think of that. Your whole existence as an angelic being is to proclaim the transcendence of God there in the throne room. And you're covering your face because God is so holy. Your feet because God is so holy. And you're saying night and day, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty. God is absolutely transcendent. And we must be possessed by that vision or everything else that we talk about as it pertains to holiness is vain. God is absolutely morally pure as well. And there are other texts that, that focus rather than so much on the transcendence of God, it, they focus more on that moral purity as this one does in 1 John 1.5. Psalm 15 verses 1 and 2. O Lord, who may abide in your tent and who may dwell on your holy hill? They're referring to the moral purity of God and the answer is he who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. Leviticus 11, 44-45, the Lord says, I am Yahweh your God. Consecrate therefore yourselves and be holy. Why? Because I am holy. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus you shall be holy, for I am holy. There, the emphasis is not on transcendence, because we cannot be transcendent. We are limited, and we are bound to the material world. God is not saying be absolutely transcendent. 
Rather here, the emphasis, as it is in 1 John 1.5, is on that aspect of holiness that deals with moral purity. Separate yourself from sin. In the New Testament, you have that time when Jesus had been teaching the people from a boat. It was already morning. The time for fishing was over. The fish are not in the place where you're going to catch them with the nets. So it's time to bring in the nets, clean them off for the, for the night. It's in the morning and Jesus says to the disciples, put down your nets. Put them right over there. And the disciples who are expert fishermen, remember Jesus was the son of a carpenter. You can kind of think, you know, if you're Peter, kind of saying, I kind of know what I'm doing here, Lord. Uh, I'm a fisherman. But they oblige Jesus And then Luke 5, verse 4 to 8 says later on in that text, when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet. He said, go away from me for I am a sinful man. The amazing Jesus, Peter recognizes, Jesus could command all the fish of Galilee to congregate in that one place, to fill every hole in the net so that the nets could not even contain the catch and the boats sank. Peter knew Jesus was holy. And as he did, he immediately thinks of his own impurity, and recognizes holiness cannot coincide with sinfulness. We also see in the scriptures that God is intolerant for any attempts that we make to erase distinctions. We, we like to erase those distinctions. Remember, the, 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 the root of the verb to be holy is the idea of to cut. What do we like to do? We like to put it back together again, don't we? So God is absolutely transcendent from creation. What do we want to do? We want to bring him back and intertwine him with creation. And God is absolutely morally pure. So what do we want to do? Some way we want to bring God into the mud, We want to bring him somehow into the mix that he's got something to do with this sin. Somehow. We want to erase the cut. We want to glue it back together. And we see in the scriptures that God is intolerant for erasing these distinctions. And what does he do? God treats it very seriously. Remember, 2 Samuel 6, it was one of those portions of Scripture that for the longest time, as a young believer, was perturbing to me. I, I, I didn't understand what was going on there. You remember Uzzah, right? David is trying to move the Ark of the Covenant from Philistine territory to Mount Zion, where it'll have its resting place in the tabernacle of God. That's where the Ark belonged, You also remember that when the ark was constructed, on the sides of the ark were built these rings. No human was to touch the ark. So to transport the ark, long 
poles had to be inserted into the rings and you'd carry the pole but not touch the ark. That was the idea. But David himself made some mistakes in that they decided to put the, 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 uh, the ark on an ox wagon. Okay, it's on an ox wagon. Uh, you could say it's wood, uh, not necessarily touching people, but it's there. And as it's driving, or, or, or as the wagon is moving, being pulled by the oxen, they go over some bumpy soil, and the ark starts to, to fall out the back. What does Uzzah do? He pushes it to keep it in place. And this is what happened. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and touched the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen nearly upset it. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah and struck him down there for his irreverence. And he died there by the ark of God. Now we hear that and we go, oh, that sounds unfair, right? He's trying to do a good thing. He's a good deacon. He's trying to serve. But that shows how low our view of God is, doesn't it? Because the problem was, was that Uzzah thought that his unclean hand was far better than if that ark had fallen onto the dirt. And the opposite was true. It was not the dirt that had the problem. It was a well-intentioned Uzzah that was the problem. Psalm chapter 5, 4 to 6. You are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. You don't hear those words very often spoken. But they're in the scriptures. Because you see, every sin that we commit... Every iniquity that we do is in some way an attempt to profane God. That's what it is. Let's just be honest. Any sin, small or great, is at its root the profanity, the profaning of God. In some way, it is making God less than who He is. It is treating Him with less reverence. It is making him come down into the, to the mud of our iniquity. And God hates it. Habakkuk 1.13, your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. So when the Apostle John writes to the churches in that region of modern-day Turkey, around Ephesus, he wants them to remember this reality. I want to draw a few closing implications of this. Not even so much tied to 1 John, but just tied to our response to the doctrine of God's holiness. The first one is this. In light of the fact that God is light, what, what's our response? First of all, we must extol the holiness of God. We must make much of this. This is what you see among the biblical writers over and over again, especially in the Psalms, but not only. You see them when, when they dwell upon the doctrine of God's holiness, they're brought to praise. 
Yes, they are brought to, the, to, to put their faces in the dirt, but at the same time, they're, they're so attracted by it that they're, they're, they're brought to praise. 1 Chronicles 16, verse 10, glory in His holy name. Let the heart of those who seek the Lord be glad. Psalm 99, verse 9, exalt the Lord our God and worship at His holy hill. Why? For the Lord our God is holy. That's why we worship. In the great prayer, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, verse 9, what are the first words to come out of our mouth in prayer? Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed, holy be your name. It's the essence of prayer. It is to attract us. the, The holiness of God, if we are saved is to cause us to fear, but not to fear like the unbeliever. Indeed, for the unbeliever, the holiness of God is terror, sheer terror. If you're not in Christ, this doctrine should want to make you shriek and run out. If you're an unbeliever and you want to stay in your unbelief, you better get out of here right now. Because this is a frightening doctrine. God is absolutely morally pure. And his eyes cannot look on holiness. But if you're a believer, you are fearful too. But it's a different kind of fear. It's the fear of attraction. The fear that brings you to want to know more about it. It's the kind of fear that compels you not to flee, but to worship. Jonathan Edwards captured this so well when he wrote this. He said, God has appeared to me a glorious and lovely being chiefly on account of His holiness. The holiness of God has always appeared to me to be the most lovely of His attributes. In fact, I would say this, and only believers can say this, If you want to know what the definition of true beauty is, it's God's holiness. Two are the same. Absolute beauty is absolute holiness. That's why in that song by Reginald Heber, Holy, 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 he writes this, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, Early in the morning our song shall rise to thee. He's got it right because he sees that for the believer, holiness is what motivates us to praise. And that's how we should respond. Extol God. And and this means this, and this is where we start off. Don't, Don't just think of yourself in this. You think first and foremost of God and you focus first on His character and you praise Him for what He is and then as a consequence to that, that's when we start to look at our own lives. That's when we start to say, okay, I must repent in dust and ashes. We must begin with this vision of this beauty of God's holiness. Number two, abhor the trivialization of God. Abhor the trivialization of God. The the holiness of God should always give us pause before we start talking about Him or start using His name. Because God is, is so transcendent, when we use His name, we should be very careful. God is not just one of our buddies. 
He's not just Joe who lives down the street or up on the hill. He is wholly other. And so any title we use, any name of God that we use, must always be bathed in the utmost of reverence. And whenever we do theology, whenever we talk about God, it should never be flippant. It should never be this intuitive idea, what feels best to me. It should always be expressed with the greatest of care. Leviticus 19.12, You shall not swear falsely by my name so as to profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Number three, recognize the hideousness of your sin. Start to call sin for what it really is. It's not just an unfortunate event. It's not just a mistake. Stop calling it a mistake. It's not impropriety. It's sin. And one of the best indications that you're growing in holiness is that you're looking at your own sin with greater and more increasing dislike, distaste. Your sin is becoming more ugly in your sight. Sometimes men will come up to me and say, I don't know if I'm in Christ. I, I just look at my life now and I think, what happened to me? I used to be happier, uh, you know, and, and now I look at my life and I just see sin everywhere. I don't know what's going on. And I say, well, brother, I don't know what's going on, but let me just tell you this. This is one of the characteristics of spiritual growth. You will loathe your sin increasingly more as you grow older in Christ. As you, as you learn about Him more and more, you'll start to see even the smallest things which in the early part of your Christian life, you wouldn't have even batted an eyelid at. You just, nah, that, who cares? But all of a sudden now, that little thing is loathsome to you. And that is because as you grow in your understanding of this doctrine, your, your recognition grows of the hideousness of, of your sin. Number four, Marvel at the miracle of the incarnation. Think about it. The incarnation. God is wholly other. He's absolutely transcendent. But here's the reality. God has also revealed Himself as marvelously imminent. And imminent means near to us. Go back to Isaiah, that that young man who was called to be a prophet at that moment when he entered the temple and had that vision. He he fell on his face, acknowledged that that not only was he guilty of his own sin, but he was guilty of the sins of, uh, of his people. God calls him at that moment to be a prophet. And, and Isaiah goes on to be the prophet of one of the most powerful, theologically profound prophetic books in the, in the Old Testament. And in that book of Isaiah, you have a title that's used there. Don't miss it. The title is The Holy One of Israel. 26 times it's used. Only seven times outside of Isaiah. 26 times in Isaiah. Isaiah calls him the Holy One of Israel. Now think of that term. Holy One emphasizes transcendence. God is completely separate. But notice that little phrase that comes right at the end. The Holy One of Israel. The Holy One that belongs to Israel? Associated with a people? And and not a very good people at that? 
That very title emphasizes already God is revealing himself as this one who is going to draw near even though he still remains absolutely transcendent. And, and then in that same book of Isaiah, Isaiah 7, 14, the, 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 the prophet prophesies that the Lord himself will give a sign, a virgin will conceive and bear a son. And what will his name be? Emmanuel. God, not apart from us, God with us. And then Matthew is going to use this verse in Matthew's gospel and the narrative to speak about the incarnation of the Son. Here's where it all comes together. Jesus comes to us, the Son of God incarnate to show us He is with us. And that leads to our fifth point. Rejoice then for the achievement of the cross. It is ultimately through the cross that this holy God brings sinners who are utterly, infinitely separated from Him. Through the cross, God brings the sinner to Himself. We do nothing to draw near to God as sinners. Nothing. All we bring in our hands is that which separates us, which God can, cannot look on in His holiness. That's our problem. We do nothing. But through the cross, through the work of Christ, the Son brings propitiation, payment for those sins, and He brings men to God. And that problem of that infinite chasm has been solved. Rejoice in that. Isaiah 53, 5, He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging we are healed. Finally, sixth point, reflect the holiness of God. And this is what we'll talk about now in our future sessions. There's always a practical impact of theology. God's character doesn't leave us ambivalent. It doesn't leave us where we are. It brings change all the time to us, not to him, to us. And the impact it has on us as those who have, been, who have had the application of Emmanuel's cross work to us is now the ability to reflect God's holiness has now been, been given to us. We are image bearers. We were like mirrors. And that's how we were created. Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image. We were created this way and sin marred that so that after Adam, all of Adam's descendants could never reflect the holiness of God in any way that would please God. Never. Impossible. But through redemption, through regeneration, the mirror has been restored. And now in Christ, we have this ability not to create our own holiness, not to, to be the source of holiness, not to be the source of light, but to be that mirror, that radiance, that shines, that, that bounces off the, the beauty, the holiness of God. That's what we're now called to be. And, and that means that holiness and the pursuit of holiness in our life, practical holiness, is not a burden. It's the greatest privilege to, to shine forth, to reflect pure beauty through our lives. This is what Peter said in 1 Peter 1, 14-16, As obedient children, do not 
be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be yourselves holy also in all your behavior because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And for those of us who are in Christ now, to run after God means to run after holiness. And to run after holiness means to run after beauty. And to run after beauty means to run after God. And to run after God means to run after holiness. That's our life. And that's what John is going to get into in the the verses that follow. And we're going to look at that tomorrow morning. When we look at now some implications of this, as we look at verses 6 to 10, we'll leave that for tomorrow. Let's pray, first of all, that in our lives, this is where it would all begin or continue in, in, in your lives as, as believers, that it would, it would be all built upon this, this high and lofty view of God because, brothers, I can say this. This is a hill I would die on. If you do not build your pursuit of holiness on the character of God, it's vain. And not only is it vain, it's impossible. The only way to joyfully pursue holiness and to do it the right way that pleases God is that it begins with this high view of God. And let me tell you, if you've been struggling in, in, in certain sins and, and, and enslavements to certain habits and behaviors, the, the idea isn't to dig down deeper and trying to, under, to, to try to understand the psychology of the sin. No, the, the, the biggest need that you have is a bigger view of God. That's where you need to go. Run after Him in that way. Let's pray. Father, we are brought to silence, really, when we come to this assertion that you are light. And it causes us to proceed with much trepidation. We ask, Father, that you would, through your word and the working of your spirit, you would in each one's life here this evening bring us to a deeper understanding of who you are. Father, we beg this because if this does not come to us, there's no hope. We must understand you better. So we plead with you to take these words of your word and press them deep. Give us understanding. Eyes to see, ears to hear. And may we come to know who you really are. We pray this in your son's name, Emmanuel. Amen.